And so, Lord, uh, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God stands and abides forever. And so in this moment, Lord, gorgeous day, beautiful scenes around outside these windows, remarkable creation. Father, you are our creator and you are our redeemer. Father, be with us in the word that you would be present to bring faith, to strengthen people in their faith. Bring faith to to some who have yet to trust Christ. May Christ be sweet and one that they want to run to as you give your word this morning. Father, encourage us by the means of grace. Strengthen us today in what you have ordained for your church. Father, for this moment is yours. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay, we are going to look briefly at uh, this passage in Acts 16. And then uh, we are going to move into Advent by way of our kind of our Sunday schedules. Advent starts next Sunday, uh, which is a time of preparation, which is uh, four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And really it's a time of, of expressing our longing and our need. Um, and it's sort of captured in that beautiful Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Comfort, Israel, right? Comfort. And so we're, we're anticipating uh, the arrival of Christ, but we want to be honest about our needs. Now, on the other side, we're going to move into the new year, and uh, I want to do a sort of a topical thematic study on, on how people change, how people change. And then we'll get back into the book of Acts, and uh, so this is a good, good spot in the book of Acts to take, take a little bit of a leave by way of our, our subjects. So by way of just the, the message outline today, um, it's a, it's a, there's, three, there's three passages here. They're, they're short, about five, six verses each. You kind of see that in the, in the flow of it. There's verses 1 through, through 5, then there's 6 through 10, and then 11 through 15. So it kind of breaks, breaks up kind of nicely. We have Paul uh, traveling from what we'd call modern-day Turkey uh, and crossing over to an area that is called Macedonia, which is north of, just a bit north of, of Greece, uh, the Balkan Peninsula there. And so he takes a boat over from, from this area, from, again, Asia Asia Minor, and he moves over there to, to, uh, to, to uh, this area called Philippi. So what I want to talk to you today is about open doors and closed doors. Uh, in chapter, chapter 16, 1 through 5, there is sort of a, an open door of cultural sensitivity. We're going to look at that. The open door of, of being sensitive to people's cultures and their customs. And then secondly, I want to talk, talk about the, the spirits leading with closed doors and open doors. And uh, that's a big subject. And uh, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to do that much justice. But, but it's clear that in verse 6 through 10 that the Apostle Paul and his traveling companions are forbidden some way or another through the Spirit to not travel to a certain region. And it's a mystery. But we'll talk about that. And then an open door is given through a vision of a Macedonian man who's calling Paul to come, travel over, and, uh, and give him the gospel. 
And then thirdly, there's the open door of effectual calling, a theological subject. Uh, and you can see where that's coming from with Lydia, where Dr. Luke records that God opened her heart to believe or to listen to the things of Paul. So the open door of culture and, and customs. Uh, this is a, a little bit of an unusual thing that happens, is that uh, Paul goes back to Lystra, which is where the first uh, missionary journey uh, took place, other towns, Iconium, Derby, other places. Again, we're in the kind of the southeast of modern-day Turkey, and this is where churches were planted, first missionary journey with Barnabas. And the Lystran church is, seems like it's pretty robust. It has a lot of disciples, a lot of people growing in the faith. And there's one young man there named Timothy, and he comes from a, from a mixed marriage. So his mom is Jewish and his father's Greek. And, um, and so Paul is uh, coming back to this region, and you realize that there are synagogues in this region. There's lots of Jews. And it's really unusual what happens here. Because Paul has Timothy, who has not been circumcised, has him circumcised. And if you know the context, remember Acts 15, you think, wait a minute, there was this huge argument about circumcision and how it's like meaningless. And in Jesus, it doesn't matter. And in fact, we should never tell the, the, the Gentiles that they're required to, to have this. And so it's a, it's a big part of the docket there. Uh, for the Jerusalem council. And then Paul heads over and heads up to Lystra and seems like he does the very thing he, he just was argue, the opposite of what he's just arguing about, right? It really can throw you off if you're really reading Acts 15 carefully and then you read Acts 16. So what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. Uh, Paul doesn't care about circumcision. He, he doesn't... In fact, he tells us in Galatians 5, 6, that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, right? So the only thing that matters is faith, working through love. That's Galatians 5, 6. Paul doesn't believe that keeping the law will ever be meritorious, right? We all, we all understand that. I would think most of us do. You, if you've been listening to the book of Acts. All right, there is no way that keeping the ceremonial laws or avoiding pork or keeping any of the Jewish traditions and customs or any of that stuff, none of that can ever add to your righteousness before God. It was just a temporary way of God separating his people by lifestyle and custom, but it never gained righteousness, right? All right, so Paul yet comes into this Jewish area, a lot of Jews, and he wants to minister to these Jews, but he's got this young man who's from this mixed marriage, and it's this Big deal with the Jews. And so what Paul does is, for cultural reasons, he has Timothy circumcised. And he's not sending the message of, Timothy, this makes you acceptable before God. What this does is this helps us not go down continual discussions with the Jews about your family background, your status, who you are, what, what's your, your mom's Jewish, your father's Greek, you're not quite, we're not, you're not, and they continue to think about you. You become this big distraction on the mission field. Now, 
we might be watching this and looking at this like really really unusual because we might think we just go into the situation and help them you know help them grow up a bit and these these jews who need to hear about the gospel need to right away not be concerned about these things well this is the wisdom uh, that god gives paul in the midst of these cultural situations and so paul is actually practicing a kind of cultural sensitivity by requiring this of Timothy. Now, I'm, it's interesting that the original audience, uh, and we learn this in Luke's gospel and in the beginning of the book of Acts, there was a, a, a Roman, seemed to be an officer, someone of, of status in civil life in Rome, and his name was Theophilus. And so Luke's Gospel and Luke's history book, the book of Acts, likely audience would first have been a Roman Roman audience. And if these documents got into the hands of those who were skeptical about Christianity, were Christians rebel rousers, were Christians against civil order, were Christians sensitive to the customs of different people, this passage would have communicated, huh, these missionaries are thoughtful about customs in the cultures that they travel to, all right? So a little unusual passage, but there it is, sending a message of cultural sensitivity uh, by the Apostle Paul. Now, what's remarkable is, there, is to figure out the application for us today. Right? How, does this, how does this work for us today, right? Well, I think, first of all, all of us have to realize that um, as we enter um, missions and as the prayer request has been, uh, praying for my non, non-Christian friends, and uh, what does it look like to enter into another person's world and to not compromise your, your principles or your, anything on, in your life, but to actually engage them and to accept them and to, and to not let your own preferences or desires come in the way or, or, or hinder communication, um, friendship, building a friendship, right? So to look past these things. In the, in the Bible, what we really have is, particularly in the New Testament we have, is when these missions experiences take place and there's a new culture being reached for instance like like the greeks in athens that's coming up in Acts 17 well there's many things about the greek culture that are not a concern to uh they're not moral uh greeks eating their greek salad that's not moral (laughs) so their traditions their dress in bangladesh the lungis uh these are not in the category of moral issues. But what is a moral issue is the bowing down to false gods. In other words, wherever there is idolatry, New Testament era, our time, wherever there is idolatry, we certainly address that. The Apostle Paul does that. But where there are things that are of just just cultural uniqueness, with no real, uh, you know, bowing down to some false god, we can say, hey, it could be dress, dance, food, right? And the world and the gospel and the church is richer for the, all the cultures of the world 
And that's how God has designed things. What's a funny thing, though, is that we hold on, we, we in particular hold on to our cultural stuff as we try to engage other people and we think they ought to become like us, but we're asking them to become like us in ways that are not even biblical, right? Not even, not even important. And I, if you're Dutch, you might feel like you're getting beaten up on here today, but Marianne and I lived in West Michigan, which is in the 1850s, the, the Dutch in the Netherlands came over from there and for some reason found West Michigan. And they didn't go anywhere. And there's, there's, one, there's a couple of spots, some towns, I think they're 99.9% Dutch. And just in case you don't know this, the, the, like, the, the, like say a church directory, there's no need for any other alphabet except just V. That, that's all you need. So Vanderswag, Vanderveen, you know. So when I was a, a, a pastor in a church in, in West Michigan, and not being Dutch was a continual issue. It was amazing. I mean, weekly, something would come along. And so I changed my name. My last name is Capen. So I changed my name to Van Capensma. <laughs> and uh, I would actually try that in, in, in settings, certain settings, and no one would really notice it. Oh, have you ever heard of that? <laughs> so so that, I am a little facetious and, and a little ornery. But um, that was really big. And so the, the cute little funny saying that they think is funny, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. All right? Well, I'm just going to say that that can, see, that, that's that cultural stuff that we bring into our, into our interactions. So Paul is demonstrating really that he's free. He's free of holding on to these distinctions. He's free from holding on to these things. These things, in a sense, don't matter. But they can matter if it means helping to reach an audience. So, all right, Dutch in West Michigan, how can I reach, how can we reach you? Well, let's just send some Dutch people to reach the Dutch. In other words, that may be the best way. For instance, in missions, isn't that, if you're going to reach people in Thailand, wouldn't it be best to have Thai people reach people in Thailand, right? In other words, it just helps in, there's one less hurdle to to, uh, to, to jump over, right? Anyway. All right, that's, that's 16, 1 through 5. Um, the open door of culture and customs. Big, big subject. Here's another big subject. The Spirit's leading. Let me just read this again for us so we get a feel for it. Uh, the Spirit's leading. Open doors, closed doors. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, in, these, in this ancient time, we think of Asia as China, and that's Asia. Well, in this time, on the maps, this time, Asia was actually a part of, of, of modern-day Turkey. This all gets a little confusing, but you can find old ancient maps, and that's how they referred to Asia. So there's a part of modern-day Turkey God was forbidding them to enter into, and we don't know how, but here it is, verse 7. And when they had come up to Messiah, they attempted to go into Bithynia. Here's another place. 
but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So they're being blocked. We don't know why or we don't know how this is happening. So passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas. Now, this is a coastal city. Imagine lots of boats. Now they finally, okay, we, we can settle here. Seems like the Spirit of God wants us to be here. We're in Troas. So a vision appears to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there. Now maybe he had Macedonian dress on or clothing, something like that, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now biblically, when there is a cry, a cry out, it's an interesting study in the Old Testament, someone's crying out for deliverance, right? It's usually associated with salvation. Think of Egypt, Israel and Egypt, crying out. The cry is not just, mo- just, not, not just sadness. It's a cry for deliverance. So this is a cry, and I think the Apostle Paul would have understood. This means go, bring the gospel. He is, this is a, uh, a symbol of the Macedonian people they, for God's purpose, are to be reached now. Okay? Verse uh, 10, And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, interesting, see the word we? This is where Luke, the author, is beginning to insert himself. These are called the we passages. And he's beginning, so what does it mean? This means that Luke is traveling with the apostle Paul. Uh, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, so closed doors, Asia, Bithynia, open door, uh, Macedonia. How do, we, how do we understand this? The Spirit is leading them to areas that are predominantly Gentile. There will be Jews everywhere. In fact, the, the first convert coming up, Lydia, uh, will be uh, a Jewish woman who was, a, was living there in, in Philippi. God is leading his band of, of missionaries, and he's closing doors. We don't know how this happened. There was a lack of peace. There was a lack of clarity. There was an unsettled feeling about it. We're not sure how this happened. But there's a clear, supernatural revelation of God's will for the apostle. Supernatural revelation. And so we would say that the idea of having a vision, right, uh, a vision in our day would be extraordinarily unusual. And we would say it's not normative, not a normal practice. So when it comes to this idea, what do we have for being led by the Spirit? How do, immediately, we're, th- we're thinking about our lives, situations in our life, how we've been led by God, how we're not sure we've been led by God. How do we understand these closed doors and open doors? Should we look for supernatural revelation from God to open that tells us this is an open door, right? Is that, is that an application from this passage? Uh, 
And some people conclude that, for instance, if God is leading me, then doors are open and things are going smoothly, right? Since things are going smoothly, this must be God's will for me. There's one biblical problem with that is that Jonah got a boat nice and smoothly in his rebellion against God. So just because things may be going smoothly, it does not mean that you are uh, now in God's specific will for, for your life. So this is a huge subject, and we don't have enough text here in this passage to say, oh, modern-day uh, Christians, you ought to take this and run with it this way. We are watching the supernatural leading of the Spirit upon the Apostle Paul through a vision to make sure he was directed for God's own purposes to move the gospel west. They didn't refer to it like this then, but the gospel now moves to Europe. Again, the application for us is, I would say this, God has given us the means of grace. God has given us a way to understand his will. The means of grace, the preaching of his word, prayer, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and what these are usually called is the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary. There's something in me that loves the extraordinary, the special, the fantastic, the phenomenal, right? And just a regular Sunday, can God speak to me? The answer is most of the time, that's the way it works. Most of the time, it is the ordinary means of grace that God is directing his people, feeding his children, directing them to his will. God's will for us is not to figure out, you know, what, what on the menu should I order? Any of us, I don't think many of us stop and pause. Should I do an omelet? Should I do pancakes? Oh, God. No. God treats us in the New Testament as mature or maturing adults. It is little children who need constant guidance, meaning specific direction, what to order at the restaurant, right? I want to encourage you that God treats you as a maturing adult in his church, feeding you regularly, guiding you regularly, revealing his will to you regularly. And the bulk of his will concerns our conformity to the image and person of Christ in character, in virtue. That is where God is working, changing us dealing with our anger, dealing with our impatience, dealing with our lack of self-control, dealing with our, this is where God is manifesting his will for you and all the rich resources that are in Christ. Open doors, closed doors. I recognize many of you here in the military. I love the interaction with you, that you are, you, you want to know that God is in your decisions. That is a, that's such a, that's a beautiful thing. And that desire alone, I would say, means that God is leading you and God is working in you. And of course, 
we can't conclude that since I have a comfortable life, God has led me here. We can't conclude that since I'm just because I'm going through difficulties, this must not be God's will for me. We can't conclude that. We can conclude that God, in his great macro will for us, the great big picture will, is he has willed that you would be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he is doing everything right now to ensure that that takes place. That the big macro picture the big macro story of what's going on is not so much in these details of is God showing me what I should do, shouldn't do. It is God is leading me to the great and glorious conclusion of this age. And am I cooperating with his purposes in my life right now? Open doors, closed doors, and a special vision. And they conclude that they are called, and notice the emphasis upon preaching the gospel. This is probably one of the most pronounced and clear statements Luke wants his audience to know, and the Romans who may be reading this and hearing this. This church moves forward not because of cleverness, manipulation, power, political this or that. This, the church is the church. It's being formed by the, the Lord Jesus, who is the prophet of the church, through preaching. All right, let's see what this preaching can do. Look at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following, uh, the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, this, indi- this is the indication that these were Jewish women here. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her, and her household as well, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Immediately, she practices hospitality. Uh, She has not only herself baptized, but her family. And uh, I love the phrase, and God opened her heart to believe. Sending a huge signal. Again, I'm driving that Roman audience those who would first read this or hear this, the same God who produced the vision for Paul now has confirmed the vision in the conversion of this lady. He has put his seal upon these messengers. These messengers are bringing the gospel of glory to the world. God is active. God opens hearts. This is how the gospel works. The effectual calling is the subject uh, that I'm going to wrap up with. The open door of effectual calling. I don't know if you've thought about those friends that you know who are not believers, perhaps family members. Uh, It is one of the most difficult things to have someone who's not a believer, who's close to you, that you love. How are you going to reach them? How is it? How's this going to happen? 
God in His grace accompanies the words of the gospel with a change in nature that allows an individual to hear the sweet words of Jesus, come and believe. Lydia woke up on a particular day and had no real core questions about her identity. Must have been fairly happy. Must have been fairly settled in her place in life. And she begins to talk to these traveling men along near a river in an area called Philippi. And suddenly this story that she may have heard some parts of it, being familiar with the Old Testament, the story of Jesus, the story of a cross, the story of one who lived perfect, the story who now gives uh, the one who, who gave himself as Isaiah's suffering servant, Isaiah 53, the lamb who was slain, this story now becomes real. It becomes powerful. It becomes unavoidable. Another way of saying it, it becomes irresistible. There's an English professor back in the late 90s in Syracuse University. She was a tenured professor at 36 years old, the chairman of one of the sort of the radical studies department. She was a radical feminist. She began to meet with a, a pastor and his wife. And she was converted to Jesus. And she writes in this book that she has you know, authored that what happened was the word of God became bigger than my story. That's, that's how she put it. The word of God became bigger than my story. God brought her out of a, of a philosophy of, of an, a philosophy of, of life that is uh, false, and she was brought to Jesus through the power of the Word of God. If you've ever heard, reflected on Ephesians chapter two, it talks about how we were dead in, the, in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's you and me. We're in this group. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we, this is the Apostle Paul, Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, I love these transitions. <laughs> He's like the most important. But God, verse 4, being rich in mercy. Well, tell me what he does, Paul. Because of it, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, verse 5, here it is, made us alive. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Lydia sitting there by the river. Who are these men? Listening about Jesus. 
even when she was dead in her trespasses and sins, she was made alive on the spot. That's it. The book of Acts is about the sovereign spirit of God that does these things. I hope this encourages you. I hope this excites you. I hope that, that you in this moment would realize that you can share and talk, have conversations, have hospitality, begin to introduce subjects. You don't have to be on defensive. You don't have to manipulate them. You don't have to present them to a program. You, don't have to, you begin to just be living your life like the pastor near Syracuse University, invited this woman in, began to just invite her into their life. And, but God, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. That's the whole text. And then here's the conclusion. If you don't get it by now, <laughs> I love these. I love the, about the Apostle Paul. He's already said it. And then he says it again. And then he says it again made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. As if it's not clear enough already. As we consider this, the Westminster Confession, chapter 10, says that God has taken us out of the state of sin and death, and he has enlightened our minds. Listen to this, and I'll conclude with this. He has enlightened our minds spiritually and savingly. That means that you can hear the name of Jesus and it's not just something that you're going to dismiss. It's a name you must approach and receive and grab onto and bring into, on your own human level, bring into my life. That's thinking savingly. This is the effectual calling. He's renewing, he has taken away their heart of stone, this is the Westminster chapter 10, taken away their heart of stone and given unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good. And effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely. When God regenerates and gives the new nature, you cannot stop these people from coming and saying, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to be baptized. I want to join Christ. You, you cannot stop them because he has made them most free. And he's made them willing by his grace. He's enabled them and you to, to respond to his call. Are you not in wonder at this moment that these words you hear are desirable and delightful to you because God has given you a new nature to care about them, to love them, to want them, to receive them because they are about the Jesus that you have most willingly received. This is good stuff. This is not just for missions in some foreign land. This is missions in our kitchens. 
This is our missions and our relationships. This is, this is trusting that God is working in our spouse. God is working in our church. If God can do this, if God can convert a 19-year-old California pagan, if God can do this, then he can do much more. This should produce in us patience with each other, love for each other, abiding with each other, because God has determined to work in those that are next to you. God has esteemed them such that he has united them to Christ. God has brought them and into and out of the domain of darkness into his wonderful light. God has done these things. He has made all those here. If you're a believer in Jesus, he made you willing. And he has determined to, to do toward you that which is good all the days of your life. And to convince us even more even more, he feeds us. Come most willingly this morning. Let's pray. Father, remarkable moment, remarkable moment. Father, remarkable moment when that Ethiopian man, an African man, came to faith there in his chariot earlier in the book of Acts. Remarkable moment, Lord, here on the side of a river, this woman, Lydia, a European, came to faith. You overcame all human resistance, and you did that for us. Thank you for loving us, forgiving us. Jesus, his body, his blood, thank you for your life. Thank you for effectually calling us, making us come to life. Thank you for receiving us. Thank you for working upon us. Thank you for becoming irresistible to us. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.